We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy for a while. I don't know how long. We'll just see how long it takes. And I can't find it now. There we go. First, Timothy, at the very beginning. And as we look at First Timothy, there are a few basic things we should know going into it. There's an introduction at the beginning of the book, but it doesn't give you a lot of stuff that we should know that is probably obvious to all of us, but is worth keeping in mind. And if you didn't know it, now, you, now you're, going to, you're going to learn it. First Timothy is written by Paul, and Paul is an apostle, and he wrote much of the New Testament. So he wrote a bunch of letters to people, and this is one of his letters. Now, what does it mean that he was an apostle? He's often talking about the fact that he's an apostle. He, he reminds us of it at the start of his letters, Paul, an apostle. An apostle is somebody who was set apart to the work in the early church by Jesus Christ himself of leading and establishing his church. And so when Paul is saying that he's an apostle, he's claiming a huge amount of authority and he's putting it all into his words and what he's about to say, what, he, what, you, what comes next in the letter, so that we cannot dispute it, so that we cannot ignore it, so that we cannot uh, shunt it to the side and say, well, you know, there's some things that are good in there and some things that are not so good. He's claiming that this mantle has been placed on his shoulders by God himself, that God himself has given him this work to do. And so what he did, besides writing letters, was he traveled all over the place establishing churches. And that's something that's particularly uh, encouraging, near and dear to my heart as somebody who has done it twice, and also is pretty astonishing to me as somebody who has done it twice. Traveling from one city to the next is enough of a job, <laughs> much less the work of beginning to preach and call people together. And the majority of the time, he was supporting himself through tent making. And so he would make and presumably sell these tents. So Paul, Paul is quite the... Uh, quite the man. And then you add in the fact that he was set apart to the work by God through Jesus Christ, and you realize, we better, we better listen to what he says. Now, who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to Timothy, a young pastor. And Timothy traveled with Paul on some of Paul's church planting journeys. And 
Timothy also wrote with Paul on occasion. Uh, when we were reading in Thessalonians this morning as a family, the beginning of the... I accidentally started reading the, the first chapter a second time, so it popped out at me. The, the very first sentence in the letter the first to First Thessalonians is uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. So Timothy traveled with Paul, and Timothy also uh, was so intimately connected with Paul and Paul's work that he was included as the writer of these letters, right? We say that Thessalonians was written by Paul, and it was, but you also have to remember it wasn't written by Paul alone, right? That's the, that's the degree to which Paul trusted and worked with Timothy, this younger pastor. And so what Paul does is Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus with very clear instructions about what he wants Timothy to do there. But then, after he leaves, he sends back this letter that we're going to read. And this letter is meant to strengthen Timothy in his work, so that Timothy uh, always has clarity, that Timothy always has a reminder of why he's there, why he was left, why he didn't get to keep going with Paul. Now, of course, getting to keep going with Paul is arguably worse, because Paul was always being persecuted, right? But in a lot of ways, I suspect that many of us would pick to go with Paul. Be like, okay, well, which would you rather have? Go with Paul, and you might get beaten or stoned, or stay here and try to lead this church that's fractious and and messed up, and there's false teachers, and they're going to be opposing you. I don't know. I'd like to go with Paul, I think. (laughs) Because then at least you know, it's like, hey, I got stoned. Like, that was something. But engaging in this kind of fight that he, right at the beginning, we'll see, he's telling Timothy to engage in, is just one of these like ongoing, perpetual jobs that you never are quite sure whether you've made progress in it. When you've been stoned, you know you've been stoned. Right? Maybe you wouldn't choose to go with Paul. I think I'd choose to go with Paul. It's not accidental that this letter became public. That's another thing we've got to realize. Paul doesn't just mean with this letter to strengthen Timothy, to put, you know, to to make his spine stiff in the work that he's been given to do and to clarify his vision of where he's going. Paul also is lending his authority to Timothy in the work. Or 
More particularly, he's making clear to everybody by writing this letter to Timothy with these instructions that what Timothy is doing, that what Timothy has, has begun to do in Ephesus, he has Paul behind him. And so Timothy may be the, the tip of the spear in this work, but behind him, You've got the spearhead, and that's Paul, and, and you see it so clearly in this letter, right? It's just you're, this, this authority of Paul behind. But where does Paul's authority come from? Well, you've got the, the weight of the spear behind that, and that is Paul's authority as an apostle. In other words, Paul, as an apostle, is giving Timothy, as a pastor, a clear charge that the work he's to engage in is from God. And so the instructions that Timothy is given actually apply to pastors today and bear the same authority that they did in the church of Ephesus. So that's what I mean by it's not accidental that it became public. We call the letters to Timothy and to Titus the pastoral epistles, because they're written to pastors. And of course, that doesn't mean that I should read them and you shouldn't. That's my point. They were made public for a reason. They were given to the church so that the church would know, here's what the pastor is supposed to do. And not just that the pastor would know what the pastor is supposed to do. Because if only the pastor knows what the pastor is supposed to do, you're going to be at an impasse really quickly. So Paul lends the authority of God, ultimately, to Timothy in the work that he's given. Paul means for Timothy to be strengthened, yes, but he also means for the church to know that Timothy is doing and teaching what Paul has commanded, what God has commanded. And the first work that Timothy has put before him in this letter is distinguishing, discerning, judging between good and bad teaching. It's the very first step that Timothy is given to do. It's, It's so fundamental that it's actually implicit, as we'll see. And that, of course, leads us to a common theme that we must remember, which is that good and bad teaching lead to what? Good and bad behavior, right? They're they're connected. This is the, the, the old words are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Right? You guys heard those words? So, orthodoxy is good teaching and orthopraxy is good behavior, good practice. Praxy, practice. Easy to remember. But bad behavior and bad teaching are also connected. So, so this is something that I always want us to remember. Good teaching and bad teaching lead to good behavior, and bad behavior. And so that's why the second task 
that Timothy is given is not just to, he doesn't just have to judge and figure out which is good and bad teaching. He actually has to stop the bad teaching. He has to stop the bad teaching. <clears throat> and then the goal of the good teaching is described. And as we'll see, of course, the goal of the good teaching is the good behavior. So let's now turn to 1 Timothy and read just the first seven verses. Just this introductory passage. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Paul is uh, not simply concerned to make converts in a city, is he? He's left Ephesus. And he's seen tremendous response to his preaching during that time that he spent in Ephesus. But he's not fine with seeing people saved and then, where's the door? I did my job. I accomplished my goal. His goal isn't accomplished until he sees a strong, healthy church established in that town. And that's why he leaves Timothy there, right? He's not content simply for people to hear the gospel and be like, oh yeah, that's wonderful, I believe that. And then be like, sweet, now you're saved. Uh, you know, here's the Old Testament. And then leave. He knows that they have to be in the body of Christ. And he knows that the body of Christ needs discipline, needs work, needs teaching. And so he, he to Timothy, says, here's why I left you there. Here's the work before you with regard to strengthening and establishing this work in Ephesus, building Christ's church. You see the same thing later on when he writes to Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete, verse 5 of Titus 1, 
that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So Paul, in all of his letters, is looking to to strengthen and to establish the church of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing here with Timothy. Paul left him there for a reason. And it's for the sake of his church. Look at verse 1 again. Remember I said, and this is so awkward, but we just, it's awkward to us because we're so opposed to authority today. But Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Do you see, you remember I was talking about the spear beforehand, just that that Timothy may be the the very tip, but but Paul is the wedge behind him. But but the, the weight, the rest of the weight of it, he just, he is completely unapologetic in saying, this is according to the commandment of God. And if it doesn't start like that, then the rest of the letter, why would we bother? Really, why would we bother? I certainly wouldn't bother as a pastor if it didn't have that behind it. I was talking to another pastor recently, and he was struggling with the thought of saying what needed to be said to somebody. You know, somebody who has just revealed that they intend to go into sin in this way, and he's going, well, I don't know. I mean, And other pastors are going, well, yeah, I mean, relationships are really at stake. And if you think about all of the pressures that come to bear on us to be silent, to not judge between two kinds of teaching, to to not judge between two kinds of behavior that come out of those two kinds of teaching, right? If it wasn't the fact that that Paul reminded us at the very beginning, according to the commandment of God. We'd find other ways to do it. Our own ways. Our own teachings. But he won't allow us to escape out from underneath that authority. Why? Well, because, of course, it's God who establishes his church. It's God who has called his people. It's God who has done what? It's, it, look back at that verse. Given us our hope through Jesus Christ, right? And so either we have God and either we have his teaching and either we're in his church and we have his hope. Or, we've left his authority, we've left his teaching, we left his church, we've lost any hope. Those things are that intimately tied together at the beginning of this letter. 
And so what are the two kinds of teaching? Well, on the one hand, you have strange teaching, right? Timothy is instructed to instruct certain men, verse 3, not to teach strange doctrines. Now, doctrines just means teachings, right? There's strange teachings. And what are those strange teachings? Well, myths and endless genealogies are among them, right? They're supposed to stop teaching strange things and stop paying attention to myths and genealogies. Well, this is, this is beautiful on one hand because what it does is it gives us categories, but it doesn't really give us a lot of specifics. And so that's, that's the, the positive on the one hand and the negative on the other. The positive meaning that we're unable to escape it just by going, like, oh, well, they stopped doing that 2,000 years ago after Paul wrote this letter, right, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it actually makes it somewhat, somewhat harder because we actually have to figure out, okay, so are there still strange doctrines? And if there are, then what are they? What do they look like? And myths or fables do they still do they still come up and and are people still paying attention to them and interested in them and genealogies what does that have to do with anything requires us to actually begin to dig in and understand what that looks like today which is why it's nice that it's sort of categories more than you know and here's the three strange teachings that you need to avoid right The Bible is often specific, like that, and often general, like this. And when it's general, we can't just let it be a, you know, theoretical, theological kind of thought that like, yeah, that would be bad if we listen to strange things and never have any idea what a strange thing would be. Otherwise, it's not helpful. Because... We'll never hear something that seems strange to us unless we can decide, strange, that's strange. And that's why I say the very first thing that Timothy is given to do is actually to judge between, to discern between kinds of teachings. Teaching strange things requires Timothy to be able to decide, is this a strange doctrine or is it not? Paying attention to myths and genealogies, what does that look like? Timothy's required to discern, to to judge, to understand what that looks like. So what does that look like today? if we're going to understand it and apply this and not just leave it a generality that floats by us in the ether. Well, myths, let's start with myths. Myths lead to superstition. Okay, myths and, and superstition are, are 
so closely connected with each other. Um, I was reading a biography of Augustine not too long ago, and one of the things that I learned in there is Augustine, Augustine's mother was just central in his life. If you know anything about him, you know that his mother, Monica, prayed for him for years that he would be saved. And so she was a faithful Christian mother. But later on in his life, after Augustine was saved and had become a bishop and so forth, he criticized his mother for continuing. Are you ready for this? For continuing to bring gifts of food and wine to the graves of the martyrs. This is North Africa. That's where he lived. And it's Africa today. There's, there is a, uh, a willingness to give ourselves to various kinds of myths, to various kinds of fables, to, to be superstitious in, in certain ways. And some people love to, to do the kinds of things that are physical and have this like connection to the spiritual world. So like the people who have gone before us and, and, and lighting a candle for them and leaving some food and some wine for them and thinking that somehow this is, this is accomplishing something or that it's indicating some sincere devotion on our part. You understand? And this is attractive. It might not be attractive to you. You might think, well, what's the point of that? That's dumb. I'm more spiritual than that, or I'm, or I'm less connected to the physical world than that, you may mean. But it's, it's a myth. And there's a lot of temptation for us to turn that into something that, that uh, you know, is able to accomplish something, as though it's, as though it's magical. And so you, you, you start down that road of following these myths and, and, you know, the bone of this saint is going to heal so-and-so if they can get to the, or pray underneath or, or lift, this, lift this image of Mary up and bring this prayer rug. And guys, this, this still happens and it doesn't just happen in Africa, it happens here. <clears throat> I get emails and, and even mailings in, in the mail with things that are absurd myths. You know, this put this prayer rug on your head, and it's like a little piece of paper printed, you know. And have you guys gotten those? Maybe it's just, maybe it's just pastors that get these strange things. But, I mean, like, there's this, there's this magical thing that you can do. And I remember going to a conference and this woman wanted to anoint me with holy water that she had gotten from the well of such and such and so and so and, and how it was going to, you know. Not at all interested. Why? Not because it's not attractive. That's what I want to get across. You may think, well, I'm above that. Don't pretend like you're above it. Discernment. Discernment makes clear 
this is strange. And it's really strange. When you get to the when you get to those things, like the fringe stuff that I'm talking about, these extreme wackos, it's like, that's strange. That's the but if that's the extent to which we we go in saying strange doctrines, myths, genealogies, we haven't really learned a whole lot. Superstition. If you, 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 if you want to understand where myths come in, just look for anything that sounds kind of mystical and magical and superstitious. And you'll find myths everywhere. Okay? Now, what about genealogies? Well, focusing on giving giving all kinds of attention to genealogies is not just what the Mormon church does, but let's be clear. The Mormon church does it in spades, right? If, If you needed only one thing, only one scripture to prove that Mormonism is false, this one would be adequate. You understand? Now, of course, we can go and talk about all kinds of other things, problems with this, problems with that, heresy here, heresy there. But but look, endless genealogies are one of the things that Paul cares enough about to leave Timothy, his traveling companion, in Ephesus for the sake of the health of the church so that they would not give themselves to worrying about endless genealogies. And what is Utah known for? The genealogies that they have there. If you want to do genealogical research, it's one of the places you go, right? Where else do genealogies enter in? Well, genealogies enter in along with this special myth of apostolic succession. If you guys have ever heard of that, it's this idea that somehow you've got this, you know, from generation to generation, it's, it's almost genealogical. The passing on of this exact authority that we started out talking about from Paul, right? They would say it was from Peter. Down through the ages, generation by generation, such that I can now say I have been set apart through the laying on of hands of someone who is set apart through the laying on of hands of someone who is set apart. And the genealogy goes all the way back up to Peter. We don't need myths. We don't need genealogies. Why? Well, because we have the letter to Timothy. (laughs) And he says, that stuff is just strange and worthless. It doesn't help anything. Here's the authority. It's been given to us. It's right there. Who is it from? It's from God.
We could talk for hours about various ways that strange doctrines come in. The, the American church is um, somewhat divided, I would say, into those that are given over to this super spiritual mumbo-jumbo uh, mysticism that comes along with special water and special prayer rugs and prayer shawls and so on and so forth and votive candles and, and whatnot. And this whole other group that has totally divorced the spiritual from the physical and thinks really in a, uh, in a materialistic sort of way that all we have is this life. All we have is our physical bodies and, and so forth. And so, and so they, they love to laugh at that sort of mystical, uh, superstitious mumbo-jumbo and make everything into... Uh, ex- that, that, that everything is explainable through uh, just physical laws, right? Physics, chemistry, everything that happens that seems weird can be explained somehow or another through scientific principles. And even those who are seeking to fight against a a wrong charismatic understanding will fall into this, rejecting the fact that there is spiritual forces at work in this world. To deny that is a strange doctrine. It would be very strange if you were to read the New Testament and then think that there's no such thing as demons. Right? Wouldn't it be strange? (laughs) It would be a strange teaching. As is so often the case, we can't fall into either of these traps. They're sort of extremes on both sides. But the point isn't, you know, we find the middle way between them, between two kinds of superstition. And really, this is just as much a myth over here. This idea that everything is just physical, that, that it's just our bodies and so forth. And by the way, this side is where the health and wealth gospel falls. It's not that we say there's no such thing as God when we're over here. It's not that we say there's no such thing as him acting. We just say it's all about this life. Give me health in my physical body. Give me wealth here on earth. Or it's pointless. Right? Those are the... That's the myth. That this life is all that matters. Both of them are just superstitious. So it's not like we're trying to find a middle way between too superstitious that way and too superstitious this way, and we got to be somewhat superstitious halfway between them. We're rejecting all of it. Why? Because that's what Paul tell, tells Timothy to do away with, to stop those men from instructing in that, those strange doctrines, those myths, those fables, legends. Where it's like, you know, have you guys ever read... Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
Okay, good book. Why is it good? It's good because it, it strengthens us to, to understand the necessity and, and the, the fruit that comes out of being faithful and, and being persecuted by, God, uh, by God's enemies in the, in the process, right? But how many of you reading it got caught up in this, like, so, some of these questions, like, well, you know, should he or should he not have done this, that, or the other? Have you guys ever, like, gotten into debates about when you should or when you shouldn't do? No, I'm looking at, looking at a lot of blank stares. Um, let me give you an example. Maybe you guys just don't end up facing these kinds of philosophical discussions, but I certainly have been asked them several times. Um, you know, was it right uh, for <clears throat> um, the for the people who were hiding Jews in the time of the Holocaust? Was it right for them to lie if a soldier came and knocked on the door and asked them if they were there? Or was that sin? Well, you start reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you're going you're gonna to find all kinds of questions like that. Was it right for, uh, what was it? Was it good, and or was it unhealthy that um, what's his name? Mm. One of the early martyrs. I can't remember his name. When he was a kid, he wanted to join the martyrs, and so. His mom hid his clothes so that he couldn't, he, he was too embarrassed to go outside and join them as they were being taken away. And I think that was the same man who then, at, at 86, was martyred. But we can enter into these, these empty discussions, theorizing about this and that, and, and not for the sake of learning how we should live and how we should act, but simply because we like engaging in philosophical questions. When we're looking for something uh, philosophically interesting to discuss, something new and exciting, something somewhat different, unique, surprising, oh, I'd never thought of that before. Something nobody has ever heard before. Extra material besides the Bible is always necessary to do that. Because the Bible is old. And in a sense, boring. Boring in that you've heard it and you've heard it and you've heard it and you've heard it. Not in that there's not excitement in it, but just that like you're not going to find some new novel thing like, ooh, here's this. And if you do, you're probably just crazy. The problem isn't that John's, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is, uh, is false. It's not. There may be things that are true and are false in there, but the moment you start making 
those things into building up into some theology of how you you know look you're going to run into problems the moment you begin basing any doctrine on stuff that's coming down from outside of God's word so that's the one side that's what that's what Timothy is told this is the stuff that you got to watch out for this is the stuff that you've got to silence that you've got to stop the men from teaching stop people from paying attention to and on the other hand what well it's left implicit but of course the other kind of teaching is the gospel that Paul preached in Ephesus right that's on the other side on the other side you have the true teaching of God's word, which has been faithfully expounded by Paul. And that's why he makes such a point of this in all of his letters. That the doctrine that he's teaching is given by God. That the doctrine that he's preaching is the gospel, not a gospel, right? (laughs) It's the only good news. And that everything else is totally opposite it, totally opposed to it. Either it is the true fruitful, faithful word of God, or it's destructive. So much so that he has to leave Timothy there and give him the authority of God in silencing it. As we get further into the book, we'll see more about what this gospel is. We'll see more about... uh, what the law is, because the, the question of the law really immediately comes into play in the, next, in, the, in the coming verses, even at the end of what we read, you know, men who want to be teachers of the law, but they don't have the foggiest clue what they're talking about. So those are the two kinds of teaching. That's what Timothy has to be able to distinguish between. And then you hit the outcomes. And the outcomes of the two kinds of teaching are, of course, opposite from each other, right? On the one hand, you have mere speculation. The fruit is simply speculation. Now, what's speculation? It's guessing. It might be guessing about very interesting things. It might be guessing about very boring things, but it's just guessing. And on the other hand, opposite mere speculation, the fruit of the true teaching of the gospel is that the administration of God, which is by faith, goes forward. Administration is very different than speculation, right? How do you know? Well, because when you have somebody who is an administrator, things get done. I like to sit around and talk. My wife likes me to get things done. She's an administrative genius. I am a speculative genius. I can think 
down the possibilities of what might happen forever. I can get stuck in a labyrinth of my own creation in wondering what may happen if I do this. But is that furthering the administration of the kingdom of God? No, no amount of sitting there and thinking and wondering about it will ever accomplish anything. You know what I'm saying? I'm not talking about not thinking. I'm not saying that there can't be a profit to, to thinking on these things, obviously, right? But you hear what I'm talking about in speculation? Have you guys ever gone down those roads? On the one hand, you've got mere speculation being the outcome. And on the other hand, you've got administration of God, which is by faith. Now, why do I personally sit and wonder and think and, and, and get caught up in those circular questions and those like million steps down the road, what might happen? Because I lack faith. That is when I am unwilling to act and therefore get caught in questioning, in speculating. You understand? But if I were to act by faith, I would be moving the administration of the kingdom of God forward. And you say, but, but should you lie to save them? Or should you tell the truth? And I say, would you just act by faith? Just make a decision and act by faith. Do it. And trust God that he will push his kingdom forward by you acting in faith. There's no need for this kind of speculation. It doesn't have a point. It's not even making an educated guess about something. That's what we always want to think. Well, you know, I need to make, you know, I need to think about what may happen so I can make an educated guess. Another way that we give ourselves to speculation is not because we're uh, not because we're caught up in and bound up like I get, you know, in like oh, I don't know whether I should go or not. I'm scared. I don't have any faith. Another way that we do it is like when we just like to feel smart. And so the bigger the clouds of smoke that you can puff out of your mouth into the, into the air around you, you know, you think you're creating the ship that Gandalf blew out of his mouth. You know, look at this, look at this amazing world that I created out of my own thought of speculation. And, and really you're just surrounded by a cloud of smoke. Because you're not going anywhere. It's not for anything. It's not so that you can do something. It's not towards anything except making yourself feel like you're brilliant or making other people think that you're brilliant. And so anytime somebody's talking about theology and they sound clever. 
they probably are clever, too clever. <laughs> we don't need cleverness. It ought to turn you off. Because that's the opposite of sincere faith. And of course, that's where you go next. That's the goal, the outcome of these two things. The goal and outcome of true instruction that furthers administration of God's kingdom, right, is what? What does it say? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now this is the opposite of the idea that doctrine divides, right? It's the opposite of the idea that doctrine divides. What this is saying is that true doctrine leads to the outcome being love. Love in unity with one another. Love from a pure heart. It's possible to forget the goal and just be like, you know what? I've heard that theology is important. I've heard that doctrine is important. And then then just to give yourself to theology because you think that theology for theology's sake is fun. But Paul's not willing for that to be the end goal. The end goal is love from a pure heart. And so if you are giving yourself to theology, keep the end goal, the goal, right? There is truth to the accusation that some will make that that we like to just fight. Right? Well, certainly true. Me, I like to fight. I like a good fight every now and then. I, I, should, have gone, I should have been a lawyer, because I like to argue. <clears throat> Just for the sake of arguing, because it's enjoyable to win. And I'm so smart that I can always win. That's the way I think about myself, Right? And so then, if, as a pastor, if I start doing that with theology, if I start doing that with the teaching of God, I'm not doing what Paul has said. And it doesn't matter how right I am about dividing which side of what. You know? It doesn't matter if I'm right in saying that, uh, that we've, we've made... We've made food into the, into the myth of today. We, we've bought into the myth that, that food is going to, that if we make the right choices with our food, that our food is going to set us free. That's true, we have. But if I do that for the sake of rubbing people's noses in it, as opposed to so that the administration of God will go forward by love and unity, then what good am I? Well, Paul answers in Corinthians, right? 
You're no good. The truth by itself without love is just a gong. And why do we ring a gong? To get people's attention. And so if you like arguing, go join a debate club or something. Don't go into theology. That's not, what, that's not why Timothy is told to judge and discern between them. The goal, as we said from the beginning, you know, there's good theology, there's bad theology. They both lead to their respective ends. And now I'm saying, yeah, but you can also fight for good theology and be heading towards a bad end. And isn't that confusing? And what I'm going to clear right up by saying is, but then you have bad theology. Right? You really have bad theology at that point. You've, you've lost your way. You don't even remember what the goal is. If you don't have the goal, it doesn't matter how right everything is. You're not going towards the right thing. It's bad theology. It's simple. Good theology always leads to good practice. And that's our goal. Sincere faith. Sincere faith. Not the good theology, you know, but insincere faith. Good theology that we can put our hope in, our theology to save us. Whereas the outcome of the myths and the strange doctrines is fruitless discussion. Why? Because they want to make themselves big. They want to be teachers. Because teachers are important. So brothers and sisters, we are to be under faithful instruction in God's law. We are to be under and knowing and studying good doctrine, good theology. And when it bears fruit, it will be a beautiful thing. It will be increased love from a pure heart towards one another. Have you guys ever felt that? That that gratitude towards God and that, that sweetness of fellowship and just the pure love for somebody. It's such a glorious gift from God. And that's what we're after. How? Through true teaching. It doesn't divide us from people. It draws us together with God and with one another in this beautiful relationship that is pure and true and, and comes from sincere faith. Let's give ourselves to that work. Let's pray.